0: You ever been in a conversation with someone, and the whole front end of the conversation, you were tracking with where they were going, like you were on the same page. You you're you're thinking, "All right, yeah, we see this exactly the same way." You were giving the obligatory head nod. You were throwing in a couple of "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah," right, right, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, and 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 then right as the conversation was ending. They said something. They landed it someplace you did not expect it to land, and it made you question everything else you had heard up until that point. It's like, did I miss something? Because I, I I thought we were gonna land over here, and you landed over there, and I thought we were seeing this the same way, and 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 we we got to the end, and you suddenly said, and that's why, and and you had to keep your head from spinning around because it just totally came out of left field. You don't know how their summation linked to everything else they had been saying. They just kind of went a totally different way. You didn't say anything, of course, because we've learned not to say anything in those moments, right? You just said, okay, um, I got somewhere I have to go. And that was it, right? You never brought that subject back up to that person. And if you're married, you went home and you told your spouse, don't ever bring this subject up to that person because it won't go the way you think it's gonna go. And like the whole conversation, you think it's gonna go one way and land one place and it's not gonna land there. So just don't ever bring this up to them. The end of a conversation is really important, right? It colors in some ways... Everything else that has led up to that point, it, it accentuates what the whole conversation was about, and that's why, and when you get an unexpected turn at the end, it's sometimes just hard to know what to do with it. We've been studying through the book of 1 John, <clears throat> and John, I think, although he's sort of bounced from place to place in his presentation, he's been fairly clear about what he's going for. Right? He's, he's kind of kept it between the lines. He has really good things to say about Jesus. And, and love one another keeps coming back. Right, He keeps moving away from it, coming back to it. Moving away, love one another, love one another. Like, he just keeps coming back to that. And he's had some, just some wonderful ideas. I'm preparing you because it doesn't end as clearly as it has been up to this moment. John, for whatever reason, gets to the end of this letter and decides to throw some things in that are really hard to understand. There's not a lot of clarity, and I'm not real happy that he did this to me, that I have to talk about these subjects, and there's not a lot of clarity. Now, here's what's going to happen. We're going to get to the end of this message, and we're going to see some things differently, perhaps. Right, you're going to have a side, and they're going to have a side, and you're going to have a side, and I'll be on some other side. And we won't really have a lot of agreement, and we probably won't have a lot of clarity about a couple of issues when we get to the end. And if you think you do have clarity, I just want to remind you up front, like for a thousand years of of written, recorded history, and we can go back and read what people thought about the last chapter of John, there's no clarity. So if you think you have clarity, you probably don't. You're welcome to think that you do, you probably don't. So before we get to John's teaching, I thought this would be a good time to, to kind of talk about what do we do with places in the Bible that aren't clear, where there's where there's ambiguity and we're not real sure what they're saying or what they're talking about, and this person thinks that, and that person thinks this other thing, and this person thinks something completely different. What do you do when the the Bible's not really clear? Now, up front, the Bible's clear about most of the subjects that it talks about very clear about most of the subjects that it presents to us. Most of the subjects about our spiritual life, the Bible is really really clear, but occasionally if you read the Bible consistently, you will come to places and you go, "Hmm, I don't know what that means." What do you do? Let's talk about that first and then we'll talk about what John has to say. Couple of suggestions when you bump up against these unclear sections in the Bible, First suggestion is this. When I perceive amb- ambiguity in the Bible, I should consider whether the ambiguity is in me or is in the Bible. Is it really that the Bible's not clear on something or is the confusion in me? How is there? How can there be confusion in me? How can there be a lack of clarity in me and not in the Bible? I think a couple of ways. One of the ways is our spirit, our spiritual growth is just that. It's a continual growth, right? We're continually learning new things. We're, we're continue, continually discovering new things about the Bible. You weren't introduced to Jesus and suddenly you knew the whole Bible. Right? You, you didn't show up at church one day, and in one Sunday, they just downloaded everything about the Bible and theology and Jesus and God and eternity, all in one Sunday. If you came today expecting that to happen, you're going to be disappointed. I'm not that good, right? I can't accomplish that in the next 30 minutes. What happens is we... We gain an interest in religious things or spiritual things. We begin to learn about the Bible. Maybe you come to faith in Christ. Maybe you get in a small group or you go through a Bible study. You read the Bible for yourself. And your understanding of the Bible grows over time. So sometimes there's a lack of clarity in me just because I'm not far enough along to understand this concept that's being handled in the Bible. C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. His suggestion is, when you come to a place in the Bible that you don't understand, and you've tried, right? You've read it, you've researched it, you've, you've asked some people some questions, and you still just don't get it. Lewis says, just leave it for a while, just set it aside. Maybe it's not time for you to understand that. Set it aside. Read other places in the Bible. Discover other things about the Bible. Set that aside and come back to it later when you may be ready to understand that. So sometimes there's just a lack of growth, maturity. I don't mean that like like some people are better than others. I just mean you've been studying the Bible longer than somebody else, and so you understand some things. Sometimes the ambiguity is in me. Another way there can be ambiguity in me is the Bible often is unclear in one place, but it's very clear about the same subject in another place. Uh, The Bible was written by individual authors who lived at different times, had different contexts. They were writing to different groups of people. They had different objectives for each of their books. The Bible is not a collection of 66 books and every one of them tells us everything about God we need to know. No, that's why it's a collection of books. Like We need the scope of the Bible. We need answers from across the Old and New Testament to kind of piece together what God wants us to know. So sometimes we come to an unclear passage in one part of the Bible, but it's really clear somewhere else. We just have to find that somewhere Else, and often the the lack of clarity is in me because I just haven't been willing to dig around and find the answer somewhere else. I'm just hung up on the fact that it's not clear here and that makes me mad and so I I don't do the work of finding where it's clear somewhere else. Another way that the lack of clarity is in me and I mean this as graciously as possible, sometimes I say that the Bible is unclear because I don't like what the Bible says. Sometimes I say the Bible's unclear about a subject because I don't want to obey what the Bible says. It's not that the Bible's unclear. I just don't like what it says. All right, that's a problem with me. That's not a problem with the Bible. The Bible's clear. I just don't like it. The problem's in me. So sometimes when there's ambiguity, I have to hold up a mirror and say, okay, is the problem more in me than it is... In the Bible. Another suggestion. When I perceive ambiguity in the Bible, I should ask how the church and Christian history have addressed that issue in the past. Uh, Maybe surprising to know, we are not the first Christians to ever live on this planet. We stand in a historical stream of people who believed in Jesus and followed Jesus and studied the Bible. Many of them wrote about the Bible, had interpretations about the Bible, handled difficult passages. And when I find something that's not clear, one of the things I want to ask is, you know, what has church and Christian history said about this verse the last a thousand years we have pretty good records going back around a thousand years ago definitely going back five to seven hundred years ago we have good resources where we know what early church fathers and mothers thought about this verse and i need to ask what's been the position of christians throughout time about this passage that seems to me that takes humility right that I, i have to be able to say we are not the smartest Christians who have ever lived, perhaps. I know we have technology and, and we live in a digital age age, and there's wonderful advances. I'm, so, I'm glad I live in this, this time. We have iPhones and iPads and computers and, and, and you know, people are blasting off into space now. it's like an incredible time to be alive. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're smarter than all the Christians who ever lived before us. It's healthy to ask. What did they think? What was their perception? Now, let's be honest. Christians have been very wrong about some issues in the past. Very wrong. I'm not dismissing that. Christians have been very wrong about some issues in the past, and we ought to be able to say, our, our group was wrong about that. But they've been right about a lot of things, too. Okay? Historical Christianity has been right, especially when it comes to interpreting the Bible. So I need to accept the fact that all of the Christian movement has, been, has not been waiting for us to finally get here so we could rightly interpret the Bible. All of Christian history has not been waiting for us. We stand in line with some, some really smart people, the, the Augustans and the Calvins and the Mertens and, the Mertons and the, on and on, the great thinkers of Christianity. They weren't right about everything, but there's a lot that we can learn from them. Another suggestion where there is ambiguity in the Bible and throughout church history. When I realize I've stumbled upon an issue that nobody's really clarified with any consensus. There's been six different opinions about this for at least the last thousand years. We have not walked in lockstep about this. When that happens, when there's ambiguity in the Bible and throughout church history, I should not claim absolute clarity. I I need to be real careful saying, I'm the one that figured it out. Everybody who came before me, bums. I figured this one out. We need to be really careful about that. We need to be really careful about saying dogmatically... This is the only way you should believe about this issue that has been contested for as long as we have documents. It's okay to have an opinion. It's okay to say, I lean this way on this subject. I think the evidence, biblical and historical, I think the evidence suggests this is the answer. But that's very different from saying, unless you think the way I think, you're probably not a Christian. And that's some of the dialogue that's going on right now, right? These somewhat secondary issues, these unclear issues in the Bible are getting elevated to, well, if you don't see this the same way as me, you're probably not a Christian. Evangelical conversations, evangelical Twitter, which I encourage you to stay away from. This is what happens all the time on evangelical Twitter. This little narrow issue that we've been debating since the church started, I think you have to be on this side of the issue to get into heaven. We need to be really careful claiming clarity where there has not been clarity in the past. One more suggestion, we'll jump into what John has to say. Where there is ambiguity in the Bible, I should look for and focus on what is clear Because what is clear is probably the main point anyway. And like these unclear passages, they kind of pop up in the middle of other arguments that are crystal clear. They're really clear. Like everything else around it is really clear. And this this verse right here has been debated for thousands of years. I would suggest that verse is probably not the main point anyway. It's worth discussing. It's worth studying. It's worth debating. But the main point probably lies outside of those areas that aren't so clear to us. Uh, Again, one one of the major problems right now in evangelical world, Christian world, is we have taken secondary issues that we want to argue about and we've elevated them to you have to see this issue this way or you're not going to heaven. We need to be cautious. We need to be cautious, claiming clarity about issues that haven't been clear and then suggesting that everybody's got to see this the exact same way. And as I was saying, that's probably not the main point anyway. We're going to jump into John, and there's some things that aren't going to be clear, and I'm just going to be honest with you and say this isn't clear. The part that's not clear is not the main point in anything that John's going to say. So let's see what John said. 1 John chapter 5, this is verse 6. I'm going to read a large, larger section than I normally do on Sunday mornings just so we get it all together, and then we'll come back and talk about it. 1 John 5, verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You probably picked up on it. Kind of, kind of central to John's argument right here is this phrase water and the blood. It's really important to John. He says it over and over again the water and the blood testify. The Holy Spirit, along with the water and the blood, testify about Jesus. God testifies about Jesus. Now, this water and the blood is um, a, a phrase that we assume, most people make the assumption, that it was really obvious to John's audience what he meant. They knew, they understood. John wasn't trying to confuse them or trick them. His audiences knew exactly what he meant, and and it's possible that it was some sort of creedal formula. In other words, it was something the church often recited that had that phrase, water and the blood, and they all knew it, and they often said it in their worship service, water and the blood, and they knew exactly what uh, he meant. Um, Some people think, that the false teachers that John has been dealing with throughout this whole book, they were using and, and, and misusing that phrase. They were misusing the phrase "water and the blood" in some way, and so John is trying to set it back in its correct context. Either way, John's audience knew exactly what he was talking about when he said "water and the blood. They knew what the water was, they knew what the blood was. The problem is, we don't. We don't know what he means. We don't know what the specifics are. And the specifics have been argued for at least the last thousand years. Right? Some people some people claim that the water and the blood is a reference to the water and blood that came out of Jesus' side when he uh, had died on the cross and they thrust a spear into his side. That's what some people go with. It's the water and the blood, it's the mixture uh, that they're talking about. Some people think the water is Jesus' baptism And the blood is the cup of communion that represents his blood. That's what John means. Some people think it means the physical birth of Jesus. The water was the physical birth of Jesus and the blood was the death of Jesus, sort of beginning and end. Here's the reality. We don't know what he meant. We don't know what to attach it to. If there's any consensus, if there's any explanation that maybe more people rally around it's this explanation that the water is Jesus baptism and the blood is Jesus death John has been arguing with the against the teaching that Jesus was somehow not fully god and not fully human his whole existence here that there was, a, there was a time that the Spirit of God was on him and he was divine in some way, but that the divine surely would not be crucified. And so when he went to the cross, he wasn't divine anymore. He was just a human. And so the false teachers have sort of been chopping up the humanity and divinity of God. And John's, part, John's point throughout this book is that, no, it's a, it's a package deal. Jesus is fully God, fully human, from beginning to end. That's who he was. Jesus was never not God. He was always God, and he came to earth in human form, lived his life, laid his life down, rose again from the grave, God the whole time. Whatever the specifics of water and the blood meant, that was John's point. From beginning to end, he's God. From beginning to end. Again, the consensus around... Jesus' baptism and death, sort of the bookends of his ministry, right? At his baptism, God testified, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. At his crucifixion, the sky grew dark, the earth shook. Like there was a testimony of God that this was my son. And some people think that's what John's going for. John's trying to remind them, Jesus is the answer, he's fully God. He was never not God. He laid his life down for us. But John doesn't tell us what water and the blood is. It's a, it's a fascinating conversation, it's a fascinating debate. It's not the point. The point is that Jesus came as God, lived as a human, died and rose again. For us as a matter of fact he gives us The point in verses 11 and 12 And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life And this life is in his son Whoever has the son has life Whoever does not have the son Does not have life That's the point Argue over everything that came before that All that you want John's point is Life is found in Jesus If you have Jesus you have life If you don't have Jesus you don't have life Water and blood can mean whatever you want it to mean at that point, as long as you understand life is found in Jesus. None of us are going to stand before God one day. And God say, did you get that water and the blood thing right? Like He's not going to hand us a Scantron with multiple choice. Is it A, B, C, D, all of the above, none of the above. We're not going to stand before God and God go, look, unless you know what the water and the blood was, you're not in. You know what's going to happen? We're going to stand before God, and the only thing that's going to matter is if you have Jesus, you have life. If you have, life is in Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have life. That's all that's going to matter. So we have to be careful when the Bible is unclear. Even someone like John, who's been very clear up to this point, and then we run into this uh, confusion. We r- run into this lack of clarity. We keep drilling down until we realize, so well, this is John's point, it's Jesus. Which has been John's point all along, right? If you Go back and look at the beginning verses that we study. It's just Jesus, 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 Jesus. This is the point. If you, have li- if you have Jesus, you have life. You don't have Jesus, you don't have life. John tells us shortly after that. We've already covered these verses. I'm not going to cover them again. But right after that, John says, um, if you have life, it's going to give you confidence. Like you're going to pray bold prayers. You're going to ask anything in the name of Jesus, according to the will of God, and and God will do it. His heart will be moved when you pray. You'll pray confident prayers if you know that you have life, if you know that you have Jesus in you. And then he segues into this other discussion of prayer in verse 16. John says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. And as the one who has to teach this stuff, I just want to say to John, why do you have to be this way, right? (laughs) Like, why? It's been so good up to now. Like why do you have to be so cryptic? Why, why can't you just tell us? Why is this so confused? What is this sin that leads to death? Unfortunately, there's no consensus. There's no rallying cry about what this sin that leads to death is. I, I think John's audience probably knew. Like the people who got the letter, they knew. We don't know. Some people think it's um, a a sin that you commit that immediately leads to your death. People connect it to Ananias and Sapphira, which is kind of a not well-known story in the book of Acts. Uh, People are bringing offerings to the church. The early church is getting started, and people are selling land and bringing it to the disciples. And the early church is growing, and missionaries are being sponsored, And uh, this couple, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, they go sell a piece of property, but they don't bring all of the offering to the disciples, and they lie about it. They say they brought all of uh, what they sold, but they didn't. They held some back for themselves, and and the disciples say, no, we know what you did, and they die, right? was a kind of scary story. Um, Some people say it's like that. Like you do something that so offends God, and you're struck down. But then John would be telling us, don't pray for people who have died. And I don't think that's what he's telling us. Like, that doesn't seem like what John's going for. Some people think that the sin that leads to death is an ultimate and final turning away from the Spirit of God. An ultimate and final rejection of God where the Holy Spirit, as the New Testament says, no longer contends with our hearts with our spirits no longer tries to draw us to God there's an ultimate rejection some people say it's that it's ultimately rejecting God other people say that it is a condition of the heart it's not a specific sin it is a continual habitual sin that someone refuses to turn away from and their heart becomes hardened towards God the sensitivity of of being convicted by the Holy Spirit of turning back toward God that disappears in their life so it's not just one thing it's it's a consistent overtime hardening of my heart to God all of that to say there's there's no agreement on this John doesn't spell it out there's there's no one opinion that is held by more people right some scholars point out the fact that John doesn't specifically say that we shouldn't pray for that person. They think it's more that John is saying, I'm not talking about that right now. That's another category that I'm not going to get into. I'm talking about this type of prayer. Maybe maybe John just doesn't want to go down that road anymore, and so he's trying to focus our attention back. Possibly. uh, Many scholars warn about this passage and you've probably some of you have experienced this in churches you've been in before people talk about the unpardonable sin or the sin that leads to death and then there are, there sometimes are a few people who leave that conversation and all they can think about for the next week is have I done that have I done that have I have I maybe I did it maybe I did it and I didn't know I did it and now it's too late and it's over and there's no chance for me and I don't know did I do it what is it did I do it they get all worked up and anxious about whether I did it. And, and everyone who studies this verse says, look, the, the fact that you're worried about it says you probably haven't committed a sin unto death. Right? The fact that you feel the tug of God's spirit, you have this concern, it's a pretty good indication that whatever it is, you probably didn't do it, right? But people have that fear. What if I did it on accident, right? I, um... I told, I wasn't planning to tell this story because I may have told it before, but I told first service, so I'll tell you. I'm in the store one day, a uh, sports store. My kids are, my oldest two are like six and five, seven, six, something like that. And uh, I'm looking for some running shoes and I'm kind of going through. There was a clearance rack. I'm trying to see if they have my size, I have some shoes that I could buy. And my oldest is tugging on me and calling, Dad, Dad, Dad. Dead. I said, just a minute, just a minute, and I'm looking. And then I look, and uh, my, my oldest is looking me in the eye, and she's holding up her hand. And I'll just say she's, she's making the, uh, the universal symbol for your number one if you cut somebody off in traffic, right? <laughs> and she says, what does this mean? <laughs> I said, put that away, first of all holster that thing. And so she and I have a little talk. Well, my six-year-old is right behind her, and she didn't see the interaction. She just heard me say, you don't ever do that again. And and then she becomes panicked. It's like, what was it? What was, what did she do? What if I do it and I do it on accident? What if I don't know? I'm like, you are not going to do that on accident. Just, I'm not going to tell you what it is. We're going to stop talking about this. Some people leave this conversation of Sin unto death with this anxiety of, did I do it? I, what, what, what if I did it? What John doesn't tell us what it is. I wish he did. The fact that you even have that concern is a pretty good indication. You haven't done it, right? When I get to heaven, I'm going to tell John. You weren't clear, bro. Come on. this. You could have helped me out here. I had to teach this 2,000 years after you wrote it. I had no idea what you're talking about. It's not clear. You know what is Clear. John is very clear that if you and I see someone who sins, our instinctive initial approach to that should be prayer. That's his point. That's his point. We're not going to figure out sin that leads unto death. We're just not. We can debate it. Like, you, you and I can have opinions. We can say, I kind of think it's this. I kind of think it's that. Um, it's, it's obviously important with a name like sin that leads unto death. That's important. There's just not clarity about what it is. What there's clarity on is if we see somebody stumble, if we see somebody fall, step number one is not to subtweet them on Twitter, right? Step number one is not to call somebody and say, hey, I just saw Did you know? John says, God gave you that awareness so you could pray for somebody who's made a mistake. Who's fallen? Whether they're repenting yet, whether they're wh- whether they're trying to stop doing whatever it is, whatever you became aware of in their life, you're supposed to pray for that. You're supposed to pray for them. And maybe through prayer, God will lead you to, to talk with them, to to have a conversation. Maybe there'll be another step, but what John's clear about is when you see this happening, your response is to pray because John says God can give life to that person. You can't give life to that person. You you can't awaken them to the thing that they're doing and and the damage that it's causing. You don't have that ability. Maybe He tells you to have a conversation, but you can't bring life back to a person that's moving away from God. But if you talk to God about it, God can do that. God can awaken their hearts. Pray. When you see somebody who has stumbled, pray. John ends. We're going to end with three we know statements. We'll just cover them real quickly. Three we know statements, and then a final challenge. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. You said this before, right? If the Spirit of God is at work in you, you're not gonna be perfect. You're gonna make mistakes. Hopefully, if somebody sees it, they're gonna pray for you and not out you to everybody. They're gonna, they're gonna be concerned about your heart. They're gonna pray for you, But you're going to fail. If you're a follower of Jesus, though, if you're seeking God's will in your life, you're not going to just keep on sinning in the same way. You're going to break those patterns. You're going to move away from those habits. If, if we're really following after Jesus, we're not going to continually sin. Second, we know in verse 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Right? The reason we sometimes fail, the reason we, we struggle, there is a battle going on. There, there is good and evil. Uh, the, the enemy of our souls has been given a measure of freedom here on the earth, ultimately controlled by God, but a measure of freedom. He wants to wreck our lives. He, wa- he, want, he wants to wreck our relationships. Right? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's trying to mess up everything in your life, and John says, we're aware of that. We don't habitually, continually sin, but we're aware that there are temptations at play, that we need the Spirit of God at work within us. And then the the third we know, verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. In eternal life, We live in a world where there's darkness and evil, but we know the overcomer. We know the one who is true, God who is true, speaks to us through His Son, Jesus, who gives us life. We know, regardless of anything else that's happening in the world, anything else that's happening around us, we know this to be true. We live in this truth. We live in this confidence that we have Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we have life. Life now and eternal life one day. And then John's salutation, his grand ending. Verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. You probably don't know this, but um, I don't have a book in the Bible personally. There's not a book of kin. Like if you're looking through the table of contents, you know, you kind of go to like the uh, alphabetized one, get to K, it's not going to be there. Right? I've never written anything That the Holy Spirit thought, whew, we gotta get this in the canon of scripture here. Let's slide that in between Isaiah and Jeremiah right there. Nothing, I I don't have anything in the Bible, but I'm just gonna say that's a weird way to end your thing, isn't it? (laughs) Like, have you spent this much time writing this letter? And and you don't say bye, you don't say, you know, best wishes, um, God's blessings on your future. Uh, rat, the, whole, the, the place you were driving for five chapters was, Dear children, keep yourself some idols, period. I mean, there's a part of my brain that thinks, First century, this letter's making its way around the churches, and every church that reads this letter, they get to the end and go, Somebody drop one of the pages? Like, I don't think that's the end. That was the end. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, this is a passionate term that John was using. Like, I love you. I love you so much that i got to warn you. You've read this whole letter. You've come all the way to the end, and I'm going to tell you every day you're going to be tempted to get distracted. Every single day. You're going to be tempted to get distracted by things other than Jesus. You just are. It's never going to go away as long as you're living in this world. You can read John, 1 John as many times as you want. You can read the Bible as many times as you want. You should. You should read the Bible. Beginning to end, you should read all of the Bible. You can read it as many times as you want. Tomorrow, you're going to walk out your door, and there's going to be distractions everywhere trying to pull you away from God. Everywhere. We live in the most distracting and distractible time ever, I think. I, mean, I don't think you have to do a whole lot of research to prove that. Every day, every minute, there are distractions trying to pull us away. There are topics and issues that people want to talk about and argue about. There are temptations that want to pull us away. Dear children, don't get distracted. Jesus is life. If you have Jesus, you have life Whatever else you see in this world, whatever other interest you have, don't get distracted from that main point. John has said it for five chapters now. Know Jesus, love one another, repeat. Know Jesus, love one another, repeat. Know Jesus, love one another, repeat. And he ends by saying, Don't let anything distract you from that. Don't let anything pull you away from that. Because every single day, this world's going to try to. It's going to try to cloud your mind. The world is going to try to confuse you. The world's going to tempt you to take temporary things and use them to replace eternal things. Meaningless things. Issues to suddenly become more important than the most meaningful of all issues. Dear children, don't get distracted. Don't put things ahead of Jesus. Know Jesus. Love one another. Repeat. God, we pray that you would help us. To grasp the words of John, to know what we can know, to be humble about the things we can't know, but to continually be on guard against distraction. It's happening all the time, it's happening in so many different ways. Other things get our attention and move it off of you. Other things become so important to us that you become less important. Help us not to get distracted. We want to know Jesus. We want to walk with Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to love others in the way that Jesus loves others. So help us not to get distracted. In Jesus' name, amen.